0: Father, we do gaze upon your Son this morning. We gaze upon him and what he's accomplished for us. Lord, it is to you we give all the glory. I pray, Father, that we would understand that in your kingdom, to be a leader, we must be a servant. To be first, we must be last. To be exalted, we must be humble i pray that we realize that the glory of the kingdom is not in self-assertion not in parading our accomplishments but in finding ourselves at the foot of the cross humbled by what christ has done for us help us to love you and glorify you in this way we pray that this would be true especially for those who don't know you that they would see their need of a savior that they would come to you not relying on their works or their deeds, religious or otherwise, that they would come to you humbled, broken over their own sin, seeking repentance, seeking forgiveness. What is that reason that we can even come to you because of what Christ has provided for us. So it's in His name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. We are privileged, as always, to be together today. I'm so thankful for you, for this wonderful church body, for this wonderful season. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 16. I'm sorry, Matthew 26, that is, where we have made our way to the evening of Jesus' arrest. Before His arrest, you remember they celebrated, you saw last week, the final Passover. The final Passover and the first Lord's table there in the upper room. The sun had set, that was the proper time for the meal to be taken, and Jesus with his men was reclining around the table. Now, what many commentators believe is that at this point, Jesus spent some time, probably the next half hour or perhaps even hour, instructing his men. This would be consistent with John 13, from 13 all the way to 16. Jesus gave extensive instruction consistent with all that he had taught them prior to this. Jesus taught them about His departure. He taught them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the comforting Holy Spirit. He taught them about His oneness with the Father, about the vine and the branches, that if they abide in Him, meaning that His words abide in them, that they would in fact bear much fruit and be a part of this vine, He being the branch. He would teach them about the sinful world and how to live in a sinful world in spite of all the temptations and sin and darkness around them, and he taught them how to find joy in spite of hardship. All that instruction was necessary because of the dark hours, not just physically dark, but spiritually dark hours that were in front of them. Well, it was sometime in this instruction that he shocked them all by accurately predicting that all of them would fall away. They would all, he said, abandon him in these coming difficult hours. This was shocking because they had stuck with him for so long. They had stayed by his side. They had stayed with him through thick and thin. They weren't like Judas. There are a few times when the leaders tried to kill him, they stayed by his side. There were a few times when the miracle-seeking crowd left him, but they stayed by his side. There were times when he was kicked out of cities. There were times when people mocked him, people derided him, people argued with him. All the while, his disciples stayed by his side. And so when he told them of their failure, they actually disputed it. In their minds, they had reached a level of achievement, had come to a level of spiritual accomplishment, and they felt like, Of all times, of all people, they would stay by His side again. They had a proven record. In short, they were prideful. They felt they would never fall again. What they had failed to remember, what they failed to truly understand and ingest is what is often called the paradox of Christianity. The paradox is something that seems self-contradictory, that seems incoherent, but it isn't. Jesus had taught them a number of times in terms of the kingdom, the way up is down. To be a leader, you must be a servant. In the kingdom first is last, and last is first. To join Him in His kingdom, His glory, life eternal, you must not exalt yourself or position yourself or assert yourself. No, you must deny yourself. You must die to your old person. Come to Him empty-handed. In fact, the gospel story itself hinges not on the Savior's conquest, but the Savior's death. This is why I've called this message Death Before Life. This paradox is true regarding not just the Christian life, but even Jesus Himself. This should be true of anyone who wants to follow Him. You don't put yourself on a pedestal. You don't come to God parading your spiritual accomplishment. No, you admit your faults, failures, sins, and shortcomings. You come on your knees. You come penitent, not proud. Christ Himself accomplished redemption by humbling Himself and dying a criminal's death, a slave's death. This is the paradox of Christianity, death before life. Now, this is a hard lesson to learn, and God in His sovereign plan, desired to teach these men the hard way this lesson. The hard way is to say they would learn humility not by hearing and learning about it. They would learn humility by being humiliated. That's the story of most, most of us, isn't it? Humility is not something we sit down and study and come to. Usually we have to be humiliated. They needed to see their sin. They needed to see their failure firsthand. And God mapped this out. It was all part of that dark day. It was a part of His massive plan that the son the shepherd the savior would be abandoned and it was also part of the plan in each one of the disciples lives lives that they would learn about this paradox that they must die before he gives them life so let me read to you matthew 26 starting in verse 30 follow along as i read aloud i'll go down to verse 35 And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the trustworthy word of God. Let us receive it as such. Every year, for the first eight years that I pastored here at NBC, I preached either a sermon, most often a a series of sermons, about my ministry philosophy. My ministry philosophy arises out of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. And so every year I would preach a sermon or a series of sermons all about Scripture and the fact that it is the power of God to save and sanctify, and everything that we would do in this church is based upon that power that God grants through His Word. The Scripture is sufficient for our church, it's sufficient for our activities, for our organization, for what we do in terms of preaching and worship and everything that we do here at the church, whether it relates to singing or children's ministry or whatever, It all anchors in the sufficiency of Scripture. I did this for a couple of reasons. One is uh, being new to the church, being new, I needed to set the vision, set the tone, set the idea of what we're all about, the direction, what we should be. And also because we have such a transient membership. Uh, I think now in these uh, almost 13 years, now we're somewhere beyond a thousand people, uh, mostly military, have come and joined and left. And uh, like someone said one time, this is the seventh church I pastored at this church. (laughs) The congregation now is much different than it was many years ago. It changes through the years. And so I felt really for some time that I needed to every year or so set the vision. Well, since 2018, that's been almost five years, I haven't preached a series or a sermon of series, and as I was studying this passage and this Christian paradox, I thought, you know, this is really close to our own church philosophy, our ministry philosophy here. This Christian paradox, this idea is really related very intimately to this idea of the ministry philosophy that we have at our church. Now, what is Ministry philosophy. It's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? Ministry philosophy. I think the starting place is just to think of that word philosophy. Philosophy is really just an attempt to answer the question, why? My father-in-law was in university in the 1960s and uh, he was required to go to a general education class philosophy 101 and he went there on the very first day and the philosophy professor stood up and said uh i'm going to be lecturing you're going to be reading the the textbook but there are no quizzes there are no written assignments there are no book reviews there's no other assignments that i'm going to have you do the only thing that your grade is going to hinge on is your final exam the last day of class And so like any self-respecting student, my father never attended that class (laughs) until the very last day. And he went to that last day class, and he had his little blue book with him for his big essay test, and he sat down and he opened the test, and there was one question, and that question had one word, why? My father-in-law wrote because, period, turned it in and got 100%. That's the 1960s kids, that doesn't work today, don't try that, we'll get you nowhere. But that's what philosophy is about, it's about answering that question, why? Ministry philosophy begins with really the question of why church, why did God institute this This organization from the beginning, it's really the only truly Christian institution or biblical institution, though there are many Christian uh, institutions with Christians in them. Maybe they have a Christian focus, but the only institution that God ordains and set at the beginning was the church. Why church? That would really be the ultimate ministry philosophy question. But you can ask that question really of any ministry that you're doing in the church or any activity you do in the church. Why do we gather and sing Why do we preach? Why do we have children's ministry? Why do we do placing the pebble ministry? Why do we have men's ministry or women's ministry? And the way in which you answer that question why tells you how you're going to accomplish those things. For example, if we answer the question why sing on Sunday morning, if we answer that question with an answer something like this, it would say... Well, we sing on Sunday morning to, to draw people in from the community, to, to attract them to the church, to, to get them here and, and get them really moved and impressed with the, with the level of music that we perform here. Well, that's going to define how we do music, right? We may start by surveying the community and trying to find out what kind of music that they would listen to. And then we would try to replicate that kind of music up here on Sunday morning, we, The why, answering that question, why, would determine how we do this. Why preaching? I want to say, well, you preach uh, basically to get people saved. You want as many lost people to cram in a sanctuary on Sunday morning, and then you give them how they can be saved. Again, that's going to define how you carry this out, right? You may answer that question, why, in different ways, but the way you answer that question, why will determine your how. This is ministry philosophy. You may want to call it Ministry Philosophy 101, but there will not be a final exam at the end. There are a number of, as I've been around for a while, there are a number of different primary ministry philosophies that I've seen in churches... In fact, I tend to believe as you talk to a pastor or a church, what you find is even if in the church there's a mixture of different philosophies sort of competing with one another, there's usually one philosophy that is, that is bowed to in the end. There is one philosophy that sort of drives the mentality of the church. And as I've gone around and been among churches and preached at churches, I've discovered there's at least three today, three philosophies, ministry philosophies today, that are the most popular. The first one uh, I think is probably dying in popularity, but it's still around in other forms, and that is what you might call denominationalism. The reason you do what you do is to toe the denominational line. Now, I know that's not as popular anymore, but it is like I said, alive in other ways. I think sometimes maybe it's not a denomination, but it's a celebrity pastor. It's some church. It's some very successful church, and, and, and people just look to them. Well, we do things like this because it is safe and it is successful. It's been proven, and so let's just do things like them or him or like our denomination. Let's do the same material. Let's have the same uh, 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 Sunday school material. Let's sing the same songs. Let's do things like them because it is safe and it's successful. Let's just copy the denomination, or perhaps let's copy this famous celebrity pastor. Same kind of mentality, you do it because it's safe. You, you know their doctrine, they have their statement of faith, it is safe theologically. And through the years it's been successful. We've seen many churches and many people successfully carry this out, and so it's safe and successful just to, just to walk in step with the denomination or perhaps with whatever famous pastor is out there. Now that's one ministry philosophy that I see in America, especially today. Another ministry philosophy is what you might call revivalism. The objective of revivalism is to create a spiritual moment. This may be on Sunday morning or may primarily be on Sunday morning, but it's also at other times. A spiritual moment or a divine epiphanal epiphanal moment could be salvation. It could be personal revival. It could be some sort of uh, uh, divine experience that people come in and experience this. And that seems to be the driving mentality of a lot of churches, this, this idea that we're here to create a, a spiritual moment between people and God and, and make that happen. And it might be include salvation. It might include a revival. And, and the hope is in this mentality, the hope is always that this revival this moment would spread that it wouldn't just be one person here or there but it would it would spread it would be groups of people maybe even bigger it'd be the whole church and then perhaps eventually it could be the entire community and maybe even more than that it could be the city and and maybe long term it could actually be the country so let's focus on revival let's focus on this excitement this moment this divine experience let's focus on some sort of revival A third, and probably the most popular of all ministry philosophies, is what could be called pragmatism. Pragmatism was an actual philosophy in the 1800s, and uh, deeply impacted uh, the way we think, the way humans think even today. It is deeply impacted by pragmatism. Pragmatism, uh, the official philosophy, is basically, basically what works is right. So this and, and impacted all of our businesses and everything at the turn of the last century and then began to impact the church. And churches began to say, okay, what's the objective? Well, we want to grow the kingdom. How do we grow the kingdom? Well, we make our churches big. We try to make our churches as big and influential as possible. And we incorporate all those attributes, all those things that we've learned about how to attract new customers, how to bring people in, how to make this thing bigger and bigger and bigger. And and by making our church bigger, we are, in effect, making God's kingdom bigger. That seems to be really the dominant mentality among churches now. Now, while each one of these things... We make it immediately, many of you who've been here a while can immediately think of some negatives about these things. I do want to say a lot of these philosophies arise out of pure motives. I think the, the, the pragmatism and the church growth movement really arises for a lot of people, maybe not entirely all the pastors and leaders, but I, but I think a lot of people do it that way because they have a heart for the lost. They, they think if I make my church big, that means more people saved. If I make it something that's attractional, people want to be here, well, that just means more people will fill my seats, hear the gospel on Sunday, and be saved. And isn't that a good thing? I want that to happen. Same thing with revivalism. We, we want there to be a spiritual move. This comes from, I believe, a very pure desire to see God moving among the people of the church and, and even those who aren't involved in the church. Same thing with denominationalism. We want to keep things correct and right, and we, we want to follow, and there's unity, and there's, there's a, a, a brotherhood among churches who, who, follow, who do it this way, who operate this way. And we can all sort of be together like this. So I think a lot of this arises, we can be very critical, but it can, a lot of this arises out of uh, good motives, pure motives. Yet while each one of these may have these pure motives, there are problems with all of these, there may be specific problems, problems specific to each one of these, but I think overall, all of them share in some typical problems. One problem that I see among these philosophies is that they oftentimes confuse God-ordained results with ministry objectives. Let's just think of revival. We, we all want revival. I pray for revival. I come in here several times a week often, and I walk around this auditorium, and I pray that God would move in your hearts. I pray that God would speak to you. I pray that if you need to repent and be saved, I pray for that. I pray that if you need to, to turn your life around, even as a Christian, that that would happen, that you would, you would experience the divine, that you would have a moment of, of intensified repentance and brokenness before God. But that is not something that I can actually achieve in your heart. That's something I want. That's something that God sometimes gives revival. You can even see it historically where revival would spread. That is something that is completely in the sovereign control of God. And I don't want to take that from God's prerogative and sovereign ability and put it in my hands as though I can accomplish it. I leave that to God. Same thing with evangelism, right? We want people to be saved. We pray for people to be saved. But in the end, we ask God, move in their hearts. Do something. I'll do my job, and that is to scatter the seed. And that is to share the gospel. The Lord is in charge of the hearts. The sower sowed seed, and he went home and slept. He doesn't know how that thing becomes a plant. God does it. We're not in charge of the souls. We're in charge of doing what God has asked us to do. We would never say about my neighbor, my neighbor's a lost person, I want him to be saved. I I think, you know, by such and such a date, I'm going to have him saved. No, you say, you know, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to try to give him the gospel. I'm going to try to make bridges, develop a relationship, make a disciple of him. But in the end, it is up to God to save that person. We leave the results to God. Those are God's sovereign will. Those are in God's sovereign will. Our job is simply to obey. So I think that's one problem. It confuses divine results that only God can control with our objectives. A great uh, illustration of this is in the church growth sort of pragmatism movement, in that movement movement, what we have seen in America is an explosion of megachurches. In the 1950s, when the church growth movement was sort of taking off, coming off the runway, there were just a handful of churches that were over 1,000. Far fewer, maybe just one or two in our whole country that numbered over 5,000. What about megachurches today? They're everywhere, right? Megachurches are everywhere. Every major city, there's multiple churches of 5, six, seven, 10, even 20 or 30,000. We have these churches that have massive, massive congregations. But let me ask you a question. Is America following Christ more now? No, it's less than ever. We're far less Christian. So that whole effort to, to make the kingdom bigger by making our churches bigger, that whole effort actually hasn't worked. It's, it's all in God's sovereignty. That's not to say God doesn't work through big churches. God doesn't have, doesn't, haven't, hasn't done anything. Many of us were saved in large church contexts. That's not to say that faithful churches can't be big. That's just simply noting and, and looking at history and, and realizing, you know, this, this big movement to have big churches actually hasn't changed society all that much. All these efforts for revival, all these efforts to, to try to spark something, to sort of whip up the spirit and, and do things emotional and get things everybody very excited, has that worked? Has awakening been sparked in America? No, it's not. We pray for it, we ask for it, but that's God's responsibility. That's not our responsibility. So in, these, in many of these philosophies, we confuse God-ordained results, something that God's in charge of, with our own ministry objectives. Another thing that I see as a problem in many of these philosophies is that these objectives, big church spiritual revival, adherence or compliance with some sort of movement or person, these are never given to us in Scripture as objectives for the church. Have you ever noticed this, that Paul couldn't care less how big Timothy's church is or Titus' church is or the Corinthians are? He, he doesn't say, um, Galatians, I've noticed your baptisms are down. <laughs> Why don't you send me a record of your offering? This will really tell me where you guys are. That's not a a metric for him in terms of the health of their church. you read the Bible, what you find out is that the Bible is not too concerned about all these results, pragmatic or spiritual results. What does the Bible tell us? There's really two things that the Bible focuses churches on, and that is true doctrine and true behavior. That's really the sign of a church, that, that, that we believe what's right and we obey the Scripture. In other words, we believe the Word and we obey the Word. Now, the pursuit of these things, the pursuit of a big church, or the pursuit of a revival by our own hands, as good as your motives may be, these things operate in contradistinction from Scripture. The third thing I wrote down, what we struggle with these, in terms of uh, I struggle with these other philosophies, is that it contradicts the very thing that we read in our passage today Christian paradox. We don't assert our efforts, we don't praise ourselves. The church is not some place where we have business like metrics to find out the spiritual health. That's never in Scripture, ever in Scripture. It's never given to us to measure the the strength or the, the value of a pastor. Oh, well, how many and how much? That's never given in Scripture. It is always about belief and obedience. How humble. Are they confessing and forsaking sin? Sin of bad theology, sin of bad mentality... And actual sins. If you think about it, this is what unites a church, right? What unites a church is not our spiritual accomplishments. It's not how good we are. It's the fact that we have acknowledged how bad we are. We all come here to a church and the the starting point is is conviction of sin, that we're pretty miserable and we need to repent. That's what unifies us. You think about even the process of church discipline. The process of church discipline is not to say to someone, hey, you have to be perfect to be a part of a church. It simply is, you need to be repentant. That's what unites us, that we are broken of our sin. We pursue preferring others. We pursue smallness. We Pursue thankless service. We pursue a total trust in God. We don't just say these things and then live completely differently. This is the paradox of Christianity. And I think this very paradox teaches us about how we operate as Christians and as a church. And this paradox, Jesus pointed out to His men over and over. We pursue Him. We pursue His Word. We let His words abide in us. That means obedience. That means we listen to His Word with obedient hearts. We, we level down to the lowest. We sit at the end of the table, not at the head of the table. Lord, I find my greatest joy sitting at the end, not trying to be first. God gives grace to whom? The humble. Now, this mentality is part and parcel to the story of Christ the gospel to following Jesus. Not parading your accomplishments, not highlighting quantitative success, not thinking that you have the authority to whip up the Holy Spirit, by simply humbling yourself, acknowledge your sin, and follow after Christ. Jesus presented His disciples with a very scary thought. Verse 31, you will all fall away from me because of this night. Before the glory of the kingdom, I must die, and I will die willingly. Before you disciples sit on thrones with me, you will prove your failure, your weakness, your need for me. Pursue humility, pursue obscurity, pursue confession of sin, pursue trust in the Lord as a heartbeat of what it is to follow me. And leave it to me whether or not you become great. Now, well, from a theological standpoint, you could say it like this. Number one, if you're taking notes. Understand the paradox of Christianity. Understand the paradox of Christianity. Look there what Jesus says. Again, verse 31, and then Jesus said to them... You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, Jesus is quoting from Zechariah 13. Some of you were with us here in our Sunday morning Bible study, and I taught Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and we got to Zechariah 13, and some of you might remember, probably none of you, but maybe someone does remember, Zechariah 13 is talking about a wonderful reviving move among the, God, the people of God. In the end of this movement is this description of what it's going to look like God's people will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, Yahweh is my God. This great move of God among His people is the result in what Zechariah 13 is about. A wonderful, magnificent love and union between God and His people. But before that... Zechariah tells us what must take place. Zechariah 13 beginning in verse 7. Let me read it to you. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands to me, stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. But I will put this third to the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. This is the way of the cross, folks. God would punish His own Son for the sins of others, and if that weren't horrifying enough, His followers also would be scattered so that they too would see their own sin and their need for Him. They would be put to the test. They would, at first, fail. They would flee. They would run away. They would fail the test. But the proof is, is that they would return and be restored. Verse 32, Jesus says, But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. In the the Greek word there, day, I think is properly translated here in the contrast... But, or perhaps however, however, though they run away, they'll run back to me, and they'll meet me in Galilee. And when they get to Galilee, Jesus would forgive them. He would restore them. Even the doubter Thomas would believe all return. All would have faith, but they needed to see their own hearts. They needed to see the darkness and the weakness of their own hearts. They needed to be convicted of sin. In a sense, they needed to understand that they are no different than even Judas in terms of their accomplishment on their own. They needed the grace of God. They needed to die to themselves before they found life. And their abandonment of Jesus was all a part of the gospel story, all a part of the plan. The plan for Jesus, His own plight... It was also a plan for the lives and the hearts of the disciples. Interesting, you hear all these disciples, they're proclaiming their faithfulness, I'll never leave you, I'll be with you, I'll never deny you, I won't do anything. Within a few hours of saying that, they all ran off. After Jesus was arrested, there was abject chaos. It began with... Peter trying to take the head of Malchus off. Remember this? In fact, you hear almost nothing about the disciples until he's resurrected. They just sort of disappear after this. Very little of them. All throughout the trial or trials, the capture, the crucifixion. We hear about Peter, but he's just continuing to deny... We see a little vignette when John comes up to the cross and Jesus says something, but that's not really anything about John's character. Other than that, they're missing. They all ran away. Look down in verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, and the crowds, it's not the crowds of Jewish people. This is a huge group of soldiers. Judas, we will learn, Judas brought a whole large group of soldiers to come arrest Jesus. And I suspect it's because Jesus was a little afraid. Jesus might call down fire. He is uh, God, after all. He has the power to do some, some pretty amazing things. And so we might as well just get a lot of us. Now, Judas had a huge crowd or crowds of soldiers. And that's what it's talking about in verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds... Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Next phrase. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is just hours after them saying, Oh, I'll never leave you. If I die, I won't leave you. And here they are running away. Again, this was all part of God's plan. Of course, Jesus was to go to the cross alone. There was no fellow martyr with him. Had to be Jesus alone. He had to die as a criminal for sins he never committed. All part of God's plan. But it's interesting that when Jesus said, you will all fall away, none of them, none of them. When Jesus said those words, you'll all fall away, not one disciple believed him. Oh, well, I won't. I mean, Peter, maybe these other guys will but I'm not going to fall away. In his mind, again, he had missed the paradox of the kingdom. He had missed this idea. You you come on your knees to Christ. You come humbly to Christ. In in that moment, he should have fallen on his face and said, Lord, teach me faithfulness. I don't want to fall away. I don't want to sin. Please help me in my unbelief. Clearly, you know my heart better than I do. Please teach me how to be faithful. I don't want to fall away. And yet, instead... He defied the Son of God. Huh, you say that, but I won't. I'm going to overcome what even you say, Jesus. Verse 33, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Unless we think it was just Peter... And all the disciples said the same. Matthew, who wrote this, was among them, saying the same thing. You could say they rejected the paradox, they rejected the brokenness, they rejected the humility, the confession, the constant repentance that is required to be in the kingdom. They rejected the perfect and divine assessment of their own hearts. They disbelieved Jesus, they rejected Jesus. They rejected the message that the way to glory is humility. But this paradox is woven into the gospel. Though they missed it entirely. So not only must we, number one, understand the paradox of Christianity, mentally comprehend it, we must, number two, embrace it, embrace the paradox of Christianity. Now, Peter speaks here. We all always like to make fun of Peter The truth is, he's just saying what we're all thinking and what all the other disciples were thinking. He said, these other guys, they, the other guys, they might fall away, but I won't. Even if I die, I won't deny. Next phrase, all the disciples did the same. Now, they probably at this point were brimming with... A lot of confidence. Now, you have these times in your ministry or in your church work or maybe even in your spiritual walk. You have a time of great spiritual success. Things seem to be going the right way. Things seem to be good. You're brimming with confidence. And what a week that these disciples had experienced. It began with that amazing healing up in Jericho, right? Blind Bartimaeus and probably some others. Then you have this triumphal entry. Thousands of people crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they saw Jesus' authority in the temple. He goes up to the Temple Mount where ostensibly the, the priest and the, the spiritual leaders were in charge, and Jesus goes up and shows him who's in charge. He goes up there and he confounds them with his authoritative teaching and preaching, and people can't say a word that spiritual leaders dare not. Say one word against him. All the crowds are following him and nodding and amening as Jesus is preaching. They had come to a time where they came alone and there was a little bit of a test when Jesus announces Judas' departure. Judas leaves. Maybe they all breathe a sigh of relief. Whoo! it's not me. I'm not the betrayer. Now we're clean. Now we're all good, right? Wrong. have this beautiful ceremony. It says up in verse 30, they sung a hymn. This is probably one of the hymns they would sing right after Passover, particularly psalm, I forget what number it is, but psalm where they say, His mercy endures forever, after every phrase. His mercy endures forever. That's the psalm that that they would sing after uh, Passover time. They sang a hymn. These men are full of confidence. There's no way they'd ever leave Jesus And Jesus says essentially to them, don't be cocky, don't be prideful. You're you're going to be tested, and at first, you're going to fail. Like I said, every one of them should have fallen to their faces and said, help me in my unbelief. Help me be faithful. But instead of seeing it and seeking repentance, they refuted Jesus. They disbelieved Him, and they refuted the very thing that Jesus predicted. They may, but I won't. Peter speaks, really, again, the heart of all the disciples. They will, but I won't. And then Jesus accurately predicts, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, sometimes people get all bent out of shape right here because uh, Jesus said in Mark's gospel, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me thrice. And And they say, well, I found a mistake because it sounds like Matthew is saying... The rooster crows once, but this just reveals that people who make this accusation have never lived on a farm or on the west side or on Kauai and understand that roosters don't have this great internal clock and and crow right at sunrise. You know that they crow all night long. Every little thing that moves, they're crowing, they're cackling, they're doing their thing, they're squawking. Now, they may, like any bird, they may chirp a little more when the sunrise sun is coming up but any reason they can find to crow through the night and they will crow the fact of the matter is there are probably many crows that night as chickens were moving around in the free one of them peter recalled later was exactly what jesus had said it was right after he denied jesus but he didn't notice it at the time the other time was probably that morning crow as many of the roosters began to squawk. And it was right after Jesus had, or Peter had denied Christ a third time and he went and wept bitterly, it says. In other words, Matthew and Mark are summarizing the exact same thing. They're just saying it a different way. No need for us to be troubled by this. The point is, Peter, and by extension, all the rest of the disciples, needed to come to terms with their sin. with their own weakness. But their own failure, their own faithlessness, their pride, before they c- could accept the truth of Christ and Him crucified, they needed to embrace the paradox of the gospel. That's true. This paradox is why I've come to, to have a real distaste for when people, primarily Christian leaders, rattle off their numbers like they're... They've accomplished something on behalf of God and only God, that God Himself couldn't do without them. Look how many baptisms, look how many salvations, look how much money, look how many we sent, look how many new churches, and on and on and on. Again, it's not that I wouldn't rejoice in any work of God to save people, but of 20th century Christian history has taught us anything is that people are willing to compromise gospel doctrines in order to pad the numbers. These numbers tell us nothing. The measure of a church, the measure of a pastor, the measure of each individual Christian is simply how much they adhere to God's Word, the truth of God's Word and obedience of God's Word. Greatness is not achieved with pragmatic success. In fact, it's the opposite It's the opposite of what you experience in your job. All of your jobs have pragmatism woven into it. It's performance. It's the numbers. Do you produce the numbers your boss wants you to produce? Jesus says it's the exact opposite of that. You become low. You humble yourself. You live in quiet servitude. You live repentant. This is really the beginning of the gospel, isn't it? I was contacted the other day by a ministry called Way of the Master. Some of you are familiar with this, Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron. Cameron. Incidentally, I had preached at a church in California where the producer of that show was in the congregation. He reached out to us to find out if uh, there would be a need for some evangelism, uh, public evangelism happening here in Hawaii. And I said, of course there is, and uh, we would love for you guys to come over. If you know much about this ministry, Way of the Master, what they do is they start in this place. They start with the law to show people that they are lost. In other words, you have to get someone lost before they are saved, right? Most people don't think they're lost. Most people are just like the disciples here, right? Look at all I've done. I go back and look at all the ministry that I've done. Look at all the money I've given. Look at all the things I've accomplished. God, you ought to be very proud of me, especially in respect to my neighbor over here. You're having the same attitude as these unrepentant disciples did. Our attitude should be that of brokenness. Lord, I am nothing without you. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. This is where the gospel starts. The, the great news becomes great news when you discover your need of a savior. Ministry, the church, what we do here is not about putting ourselves on a pedestal and parading our good works around to one another. it is and humbling ourselves in service to one another. When we do this, we find mercy in Christ. This is the true at the moment of salvation, but it can, begins to be something that identifies us as Christians, should carry us all the way to eternity, this repentant attitude. Well, let's pray for that kind of humble attitude today. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for putting these disciples in here for our example. All these disciples, we knew their names, we knew... The names of these men who were faithless, we know that you did indeed restore them. You had called them. You would restore them to yourself. They would return to you. And so, Lord, I pray, first of all, for those of us who are believers, that you would beckon us to this humility, a life of brokenness, a life of servitude. Help us to be humble. And Lord, for those who don't know you, help them see that this is the beginning of salvation. Realize that they are nothing without you coming to them, saving them. Grant them faith and repentance. All this we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, please stand with me for a benediction, and we'll be dismissed. Now may we go encouraged by the fact that despite our sin, our failure, and our faithlessness, there is one who is faithful, Jesus Christ, in whom we believe and in whom we rejoice. Amen.